0: to viewers, welcome, and today I have a very special guest, Dan Kennedy, who uh, is a professor of journalism, is on TV, and has a background in writing for some papers that uh, local people will recognize, but before I introduce Dan, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the morning routine and the, at the McDougal household and see if any of you still do the same. So we get up in the morning, we make our coffee, and then we sit together and we read the physical copy of the Boston Globe, which of course has gotten thinner and thinner over the years, and the front section is primarily feeds from the New York Times, the Washington Post, AP, and then in the next three sections you'll get the local flavor. And then after we finish, my husband goes onto his tablet and I go on to my desktop and I read the Washington Post and I read the New York Times and Huffington Post. And you can see I'm a complete newspaper junkie, which is why I'm so excited to have Dan with me. So, Dan, do you do that? Do you hit up a, a physical paper first thing in the morning?
1: Uh, we have been uh, seven-day digital subscribers to the Globe, the Post, and the Times for many years. We do get the Sunday uh, Times and Globe in print, but uh, the rest of the week it's strictly digital. We can't afford it.
0: I know the the Globe is is drives me crazy at how expensive it is, and the I get the Washington Post digitally, and uh, it's only ninety nine dollars a year, and I pay a hundred and two dollars a month for the Globe. But I no. just I feel like I'm the last person holding. <laughs> the globe. <laughs> and if I cancel my subscription, it's the print edition will disappear, which I just don't want to happen. Um, so your background was really interesting to me because, you, first of all, you're teaching journalism now. So you know my thought was that journalism as a career has, I thought it basically disappeared. So can you tell us a little about what it's like to teach journalism in an age where it's so different than traditionally?
1: Well, it certainly is different, but I have to say uh, I not only teach at Northeastern, but I'm an alumnus of Northeastern's journalism program. And what I would tell you is that today, as much as 40, 45 years ago, um, many of our students go into a variety of communications-related careers. Uh, It's never been the case that they all want to go into journalism. They go into public relations, corporate communications jobs of various kinds. And that's a good thing because there were still jobs in those areas. Now, there's no question that the number of journalism jobs have declined, Uh, but we always have a few really highly motivated students who just want those newspaper, television, digital journalism jobs, and they find a way to do it. Uh, We have alums everywhere from uh, the Washington Post to BuzzFeed to a variety of digital startups.
0: So that's very encouraging then, because I figured if you were going to be like a PR person, you would go into communications per se, as opposed to journalism. So do do they get give degrees in journalism or is it called something else? Uh,
1: Currently they get degrees in journalism although we offer some public relations courses that they're able to um, that they're able to take as well. Uh, We're always thinking about what we want to do next. It's very possible that within the next few years uh, students will be able to get a public relations degree from our School of Journalism.
0: That makes sense. And what about, do you teach writing for online outlets differently than you do writing for traditional newspapers, let's say?
1: Uh, I'd say no. And maybe 10 or 15 years ago, when we were first starting to head down this path of online, uh, people had a sense that, oh, well, you have to write differently for online. And I think that we've moved away from that actually. And part of it is because the technology is so good today that we have moved away from thinking that, oh, if it's online, you just wanna write short little stuff. People will read in depth online just as much as they will in print. And so therefore, it isn't really all that different.
0: Do you have a class called Writing for Your Phone? (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, we don't, but we certainly have a number of classes that focus on the different digital skills that students need to know when they when they move on.
0: Were you teaching at Northeastern when the big switch happened and newspapers started to uh, die, or physical newspapers started to die off in, in, uh, in favor of online outlets?
1: Well I've been teaching at Northeastern since 2005 and so we were already ten years into the commercial web at that point but i think the big revolution that came about right about that time was that that was the big switch over to everyone having constant broadband access Ah. And we were finally moving away from the dial-up modems. (laughs) And broadband absolutely revolutionized everything. And so certainly a lot of my uh, research and uh, thinking about the business has focused on that period from 2005 onward. And then, of course, the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, when uh... traditional newspapers really began to shrink and we started to wonder how can we make a transition to digital while still preserving the best of uh... what we liked about newspapers
0: it's amazing to me how a simple little concept like craigslist basically is what put the arrow in the heart of newspapers more than almost anything else you can name broadband makes sense but uh... Like, who even could envision something like that?
1: That's exactly it. I mean, you know, there's criticism of the newspaper business that they didn't prepare for digital. And it's actually that criticism is misplaced. There was an enormous amount of preparing for digital, but you can't always anticipate what's coming. When we first started heading down the road toward digital, And newspapers have been thinking about this since the 1980s, by the way. Hmm. But I remember when people would talk about how fantastic classified ads were going to be in the digital age. They'll be searchable. We can add video to them. It's going to be easier to find what you want. And we're all going to make a fortune and life will go on (laughs) even better than before. No one could have anticipated that somebody was going to come along and say, I'm gonna give away classified ads. And you can't compete with free. Right, absolutely uh, right. And, and overnight, there went 40% of a typical newspaper's revenue. Which,
0: so I guess in a way we should be happy that they're still around at all. But now I wanna kinda of swerve into your book itself which is called The Return of the Moguls. And um, I'm gonna ask you to describe what happened on one August weekend in 2013, that is really the
1: basis for your book. Um, well, okay, uh, you know, I was casting about for a project at that point. Um, I my previous book on hyperlocal community journalism had come out, called "The Wired City," and I was wondering what was going to happen next. And as you say, in one August weekend in 2013, uh, we learned on a Friday that John Henry, the principal owner of the Red Sox, was going to buy the Boston Globe from the New York Times company. And uh, the following Monday, we learned that, uh, that we're taking an expansive definition of a weekend here. (laughs) Uh, The following Monday, we found out that Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, was gonna buy the Washington Post. And, Thinking Well, okay, this is very interesting. Two extremely wealthy people want to take a chance on newspapers at a time when uh, the business was looking pretty grim. Now, as I always tell my students, you need three to make a trend story. So at the same time that John Henry and Jeff Bezos came along, uh, there was a young entrepreneur with some Boston roots named Aaron Kushner who was getting very high marks for the way he was remaking the Orange County Register in Southern California. So, uh, my editor and I said, you know, let's watch this for a while and see what develops. Let's see what kind of a story can come out of it. And that's really where the roots of The Return of the Moguls is. probably seventy percent of the book is about those three newspaper publishers
0: well there's also I think uh, one of the things I loved about the book was um, the fact that you go you bet go back and you go forward I mean your roots are in the Woburn Times and Chronicle which is pretty amazing and then the Boston Phoenix which Um, We olds remember with great fondness that (laughs) and the real paper. And um, so the book isn't only about Bezos and John Henry, but it's also about kind of how everything grew and changed. And I'm going to ask you to just read a little bit from your introduction, if you don't mind. Be Um, happy to do it. Because I think it it just, uh, I sometimes find that introductions are... (laughs) and the best part of books because you kind of have to summarize what's going to happen next and um, I thought you was the whole book was good but I particularly like the introduction
1: well thank you thank you well there's a couple of friends of mine who read the manuscript told me remember most people will most reviewers will only read the introduction ah there you go so you gotta put a a lot of uh, effort into the introduction Uh, newspapers matter when I use the term newspaper I am not referring strictly to print. If and when a major daily newspaper successfully makes the transition to digital only, it will still be no less a newspaper. Instead, my definition of a newspaper is a news organization whose main output consists of original, mostly text-based journalism that covers important events and issues, whose coverage is broad-based rather than niche-oriented and includes politics, government, breaking news, investigative reporting, business, sports, arts, and culture, and that appeals to a mass audience, either at the community level or nationally. The Huffington Post is not a newspaper because, although it publishes some original journalism, much of its content consists of the aggregated work of others. Politico and Vox are not newspapers because they are narrowly focused on politics and policy analysis respectively even though they occasionally branch out into other areas. The Washington Post, the Boston Globe, and the Orange County Register are newspapers and would be even if they stopped publishing their print editions altogether. Original journalism, a broad mandate, and a mass audience are crucial to the soul of a newspaper. If journalism is not meeting the information needs of a community, self-governance becomes impossible. The media scholar Alex Jones has, that's not. Not
0: that one. Not
1: that Alex Jones, (laughs) has written about what he calls the iron core of journalism, which he defines as, quote, the form of news whose purpose is to hold government and those with power accountable." By Jones's estimate, at least 85% of original, professionally reported accountability journalism is produced by newspapers. Local television news provides little in the way of such journalism. Most commercial radio stations no longer broadcast any local news, any news at all. Community websites and blogs can provide an important service but with very few exceptions they lack the resources to offer much original reporting. Even most large well-funded public radio stations and there are many supplement their original reporting with rip and read stories from the local daily newspaper. By some measures newspaper readership has been on the wane for nearly a century. It reached a peak in the 1920s when the average household received 1.2 newspapers a day. By 2001, a time when the business was still reasonably healthy, barely more than half of households received a daily paper. What had changed was that multiple newspapers were published in most cities in the 1920s, whereas by 2016 nearly every city in the country was a one-daily town. Well into the 1990s, for instance, Boston was the home of five Daily Papers. I'm sorry, well into the 1950s. Boston was the home of five Daily Papers. The Globe, The Herald, which included The Evening Traveler, and The Post, all broadsheets, and two tabloids, The Daily Record and The American. By 2016, there were just two, The Globe and The Herald, a small tabloid that survived in part because it had a printing contract with its larger rival.
0: So um, that I I don't didn't live here when there were five papers, but I can remember seeing the green Boston Globe truck driving around, and it said afternoon. It said morning and afternoon on it because there was an afternoon paper.
1: There was a the Boston Evening Globe. Yeah. I still remember yeah, it.
0: Yeah. yep, So uh, sad to think, but. Um, I'm, I'm, I know we, we could speak for hours, and I'm afraid we're going to run short of time. So I want to get to basically the gist of the book, um, which is basically the ownership and the purchase by Bezos of the Post and by John Henry of the Globe. In the book, you see these as, very pos- as positive developments, primarily because to date, these owners have not interfered with the newsroom, which I think it's unusual for um, someone like I mean Jeff Bezos certainly interferes with every bit of Amazon, and yet he has has a hands off, uh, very positive. I think just you know I'm going to fund you to the post. I'm going to help you get great. I'm going to keep you going, um, and but I'm not going to tell you anything. And he meets with um, the you know the the uh, editors very you know maybe once a week, once every two weeks. Um, and then you've got John Henry, who seems to have a balance also with, you know, the Red Sox and the Globe of, you know, he's not like in there meddling every two minutes. So do you think that has helped uh, the, those two newspapers, the owners handling of them?
1: Absolutely. I mean, Jeff Bezos in particular, I think, has been a model newspaper owner uh, in terms of being hands off with, the journalism of The Post. Uh, He's certainly been very interested in the technology and marketing of The Post. And uh, interestingly enough, he didn't even um, remove their chief technologist when he bought The Post. You'd think that Bezos would have an opinion about that. Uh, In fact, I think he did have an opinion. He realized that Shailesh Prakash, who's their chief technology person, uh, was one of the best in the country, and so he left him in place. Uh, but I do think that, unlike the journalism side, uh, Jeff Bezos has probably made Shailesh Prakash's life a little more difficult than <laughs> than he would have liked it to be. Now, John and Linda Henry's approach to the globe has been a little bit different than Bezos's. Uh, they don't interfere in the news product. That's true but it is appropriate if an owner wants to to get involved in the editorial pages and the Henry's have been very involved in the editorial pages Um, I can't say that their um, ideological orientation has changed much since the Henry's bought the globe it's still moderately liberal um, but the way it's executed uh, they take a great interest in, and they are fairly hands-on about that.
0: How how do you how do you mean? Like w- the way it's executed, like what give me? Well, Linda is she's an, either the, is she called the publisher, or she has a big title in the Globe. Linda. Henning. Well,
1: they both took a big title. For instance, Jeff Bezos took no title at all uh-huh. with the Washington Post. Um, uh, um, there's a publisher and there is an editor, Marty Barron. and there's an editor of the editorial page, Fred Hyatt. Um, the publisher is a longtime Washington political operative named Fred Ryan. At The Globe, John Henry's the publisher, and Linda Henry is the managing director. Ah. And so uh, they are quite involved in the business operations of The Globe and the editorial pages. Uh, I'll give you an example of something where the Henry's influence was felt quite a bit. Uh, There was a really interesting project that the editorial pages did a few years ago called uh, Make It Stop, and it was an editorial about gun violence, and the digital version of that in particular um, was quite striking. It had all these interactive features. You could figure out who your uh, member of Congress was and tweet at them. Uh, it, it, had, it, it had all these running totals of gun violence and things like that. And the Henrys were quite involved in that. Um, this was something that they wanted and they pushed to have it come to fruition. Uh, you may also remember um, an interesting, but perhaps somewhat less successful project that the editorial pages did a few years ago. They did a fake front page of what would happen if Donald Trump would get elected (laughs) president. And it actually was quite prescient. And uh, in some respects, it was really well done, but people got confused because it wasn't really labeled as being part of the editorial pages. A lot of people got it as the front page of their globe that Sunday (laughs) and say, what is this? and um that was something that i know the henry's were very involved in as well
0: that was pretty creative because it well, i remember when i received when i got it i said oh wow this is just like the national lampoon high school yearbook you know it was like a mock-up of uh and of course it was horrifying and it wasn't anything to laugh about but yeah i thought that was that was very creative so i'm going to ask you one question about one of my favorite parts of the post more than the globe and that's the comment section so um, I since I am an online subscriber for the post the globe and the times and I like to uh, get my two cents in the times has a very limited number of articles that allow comments so limited that it gets very frustrating um, to me the Washington Post every basically every article allows commentary and in your book you quote uh, Virginia he- Virginia uh, Heffernan, um, no, I'm going to uh, come up with a not her quote, but um, you say for the most part cesspools of pseudonymous hatred and stupidity is it makes up commentary sections. So what do you think about them in general? Between the Times saying we'll give you one article a day you can post comments on, and the Washington Post and the Globe pretty much saying. We'll, we'll put anything in and we'll choose to block it if it's obscene or whatever. What do you think?
1: You know, when we started down this road 25 years ago, I think there was a sense that comments were going to be a great addition to what news organizations did. <clears throat> and unfortunately, that really hasn't turned out to be the case. And I think a lot of it has to do with the idea that... Um, news organizations have not put the resources into tending the garden. And when you don't tend the garden, the weeds grow up. I'll say. And uh, in fact, I would point to the Times as one of the very few news organizations that has successfully managed comments. Uh, maybe they ought to hire a few more people so that they can have more comments. Uh, but they need to be managed. You can't, you can't just let them you just can't let this sociopathic content be posted and then take it down after the fact. Mm. I think it has a harmful effect on your brand and reputation. Um, interestingly enough, my previous book, *The Wired City*, I got into comments quite a bit because most of that book is about the New Haven Independent, which is a nonprofit, digital-only news source in New Haven that's absolutely wonderful, and they've taken comments seriously right from the beginning no comment goes up until somebody at the independent has taken a look at it Hmm. and i think that if you're not willing to make that commitment you shouldn't bother with comments you know i I write a weekly column for wgbhnews.org and a few years ago uh, we changed the content management system and as part of that somebody turned off the comments and we haven't had comments since then and you know i don't think there's been a single complaint
0: ah well i i really have such mixed feelings about it because especially in the post since there are so many comments i i read them and then you know they're the same people you would come to recognize their pseudonyms posting the same stuff um, a lot of misinformation, lies, nonsense. And I just wish that the Post would get in there and manage it. But on the other hand, I kind of like the, the openness and the free-for-all of it, so I'm, I'm conflicted about it. And I'll read a certain amount, and then when I get fed up from seeing the same ridiculous things from the same people, I just I just leave. Sure. But... Um,
1: You know one other way that you can do comments in a somewhat civil way is any news organization can post links to their stories on on Facebook and we all have our issues with Facebook. (laughs) Uh, However, for some reason, I found this with my own work, um, you tend to get a fairly civil and constructive discussion on Facebook that you don't seem to get on a news site's comment section. That's
0: interesting because I don't usually read the comment section on Facebook at all. I just, you know, I do my own posting and, and right. that's it. But that's that's an interesting, uh, different way of looking at it. All right, well, I think that's a good possibility. But now I do want to go back to that quote um, from Virginia Heffner. and she said, "Digital literacy involves chiefly the refusal to read." So I thought in the context of Donald Trump and his tweeting, and we all know that he has difficulty with reading, that that was an an interesting quote. How, you know, do you agree with that?
1: Well, yes, I do. I agree with it completely. And what Virginia Heffernan was referring to was quantity, not quality. Uh, Uh, There's just so much coming at us that it's impossible to keep up with it. So we spend so much of our day just kind of being bombarded with all this stuff in the digital space. And what she's saying is that most of what we're doing is deciding what we can skip.
0: Oh, that's a good point.
1: And I think that this is an important idea for people who really care about newspapers. Again, I'm, I, digital, not just in print, because newspapers do draw a line around the news and what's outside the line is what professional journalists have decided you can skip it's not important enough for you to necessarily worry about and the idea of having a curated collection of news that professionals have decided is important I'd say 10, 20 years ago was falling out of favor. The idea was, well, everybody should be their own editor. And now we've realized that that didn't work very well and that we want some people making some judgments for us. We don't always have to agree with their judgments. We can go outside those lines when we want to. But for the most part, uh, because there were only so many hours in the day, uh, if we have people whose job it is to determine what's worthy of our attention and what isn't, they're saving us a lot of time and energy. And I think that's what she was saying.
0: I think uh, that's, an, uh, that's just a great way to look at it. I feel um, a little bit more hopeful now about the future of journalism and newspapers having brought you on the show. And um, I'm afraid we have to wrap up, but to viewers... Please check out uh, Dan's books and especially The Return of the Moguls. Those of you who are interested in the Boston Globe will um, especially will really enjoy it. It's a great read. And Dan, I want to thank you so much for um, coming on, for your coming on today. And I also wanted to put in a little plug for you and your show that you appear on on WGBH
1: called Beat the Press. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Eileen. We had, this was fun.
0: Thanks, Dan. Okay, books do viewers. Please don't cut us out of the circle uh, of, you, of what you read and listen to. and we'll see you next time.